there's a gazillion things happening across the world right now that are of you know huge interest uh, to our, our readers and to the you know Navy Marine Corps team. The Olympics start today. Uh, so that's an interesting, there's a lot of, of chatter about, you know, is this uh, going to be a moneymaker for, uh, for Beijing? Uh, or is it going to show China for the totalitarian authoritarian state that it is? Uh, Vladimir Putin is in Beijing for one-on-one -on -one with Xi Jinping, you know, the, the two autocratic leaders and, you know, Putin's uh, probably at least for now, put put uh, any any think, thoughts of uh, invasion of Ukraine on hold because he doesn't want to upstage uh, China and Xi Jinping uh, as China's you know major debut on the stage here with the Olympics today. But that doesn't mean that he won't at some point you know at, towards the end of the Olympics or or into next month. But a lot of chatter about that, right? About you know the weather and permafrost and you know, the winter months are the right months. And if you if you wait too long, you get into springtime, it starts to get pretty uh, muddy and, and bogged down. So, you know, tracked armor invasion of, uh, of Eastern Ukraine becomes more difficult. So remind me, did after the Sochi Olympics, is that when he took Crimea? Is yes. It, okay, so there is precedent for this idea. Yeah, so there was a New York Times report uh, that today I, I was reading that, uh, hey, watch closely because, uh, you know, Putin's now got a, uh, a track record. So in the summer of 2008, uh, that's when he sent forces into Georgia, right? So that was the Georgia crisis, 2008, uh, kind of, you know, spanking a former Soviet Republic, uh, not happy with uh, the, the, the trend of the Georgians towards NATO and towards the West. Uh, then fast forward in, in 2014, the Olympics in Sochi, uh, end and and Putin sends forces into Crimea, and now here we are in in 2022, Olympics starting today, and Putin you know with forces all geared up uh, on the eastern front, the north north uh, you know northeastern front of uh, uh, of Ukraine. So it's an interesting time for sure. Another thing we want to point out before we get to our guest is we're. This time, two weeks from now, we'll actually be in San Diego for West in person. We're very excited since we've missed last year because of the COVID situation, but we're heading out that way. So if you're in the greater San Diego area, we hope to see you guys out there. Uh, lots going on and uh, a lot of, as always, a lot of good panels and keynotes and so forth and so on. And also, we always look forward to our member event at the Ultimate Skybox which we are having. So we hope to see everybody that's around out there. Yeah. So that's uh, 16, 17, 18 February, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We've got the sea service uh, chiefs. We've got some amazing panels set up. The focus, uh, you know, the overall focus of West this year is, is the U.S. military investing in the technologies and capabilities fast enough that it needs for great power competition? Uh, so there's, all kinds of ramifications from operational and tactical to technological and procurement decisions and investment in, uh, you know, in basic research and R&D and hypersonic weapons and AI and cyber and, you know, you name it. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of great stuff to talk about there. Uh, and for uh, if you're active duty, West is free. So active duty members, just come on in. We, we love to see you. Uh, if you are not active duty, but you're a Naval Institute member, there is a deep discount 
for instead of being I think uh, $700 or something to register, it's uh, it's uh, somewhere around $500. So it's like a $200 discount for Naval Institute members. But the biggest thing is if you're active duty or U.S. government employees. So if you're a government civilian, uh, West is free. So come on out. And we're overbooked. So every you know booth is going to have best stuff. So if you're a kind of person who likes to go to these conferences and walk the floor and collect some swag, this is your kind of place. You know, it's going to be uh, the latest and greatest. And just like we were frustrated by missing last year, so too were uh, the defense industry folks who are going to be there showing what they're working on. So active duty, war fighters want to know what am I getting next? Aficionados who are interested in what's happening in the sea services with respect to what uh, the defense industry is working on. And also the system, the syscoms will be there as they always are. So it's uh, not to be missed uh, worth, worth every, uh, um, every bit that you would either pay or again, as Bill said, if you're um, active duty, you get in free. So, you know, what's not what's to like about that. So let's get right to uh, Lieutenant Alt, Bill. Yeah. So I want to just uh, show a picture of the, the cover of the February issue of proceedings so our focus is information warfare. The issue's got the three winners of uh, this year's information warfare essay contest, which is sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton. And our guest today joining us from Chicago is Coast Guard Lieutenant Rachel Alt. She is the author of an essay that starts on page 26, 27 of the February proceedings. The title is The Coast Guard Needs Stronger Policy to Prevent Maritime Cyber Attacks. Lieutenant Alt, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you so much for having me on. So uh, let's just start a little bit with your background and what prompted you to write this article. So you're calling from Chicago. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your specialty in the Coast Guard, what you do in Chicago, and then why did, why did you write the article? Yeah, that's a good question. So I am the Chief of Vessel Inspections uh, at MSU Chicago. And what that means is I'm in charge of four inspectors who go out and uh, inspect vessels, commercial vessels um, that either carry a cargo that we think is dangerous, they are towing vessels, they're inspected passenger vessels. Um, and I think when I tell people what I do, a lot of people are, su are surprised because they don't know that the Coast Guard has a regulatory arm. Um, but I, I mean, that's really what we do. It's the Ports and Waterways Safety Mission. And my office here in Chicago has 30 people, 50 when you include reservists. And we carry out a whole host of regulatory functions to ensure that the marine transportation system is safe and secure and free from pollution. So the people in my office, they go out and respond to pollution events. They permit marine events that are affecting the waterways. We inspect vessels. We inspect waterfront facilities. And we also, if something goes wrong, we go out and try to investigate why it went wrong and make recommendations to make the waterway safer. Um, so under that guise, um, I think the impetus for writing this essay for me was the Coast Guard came out with their 2021 Cyber Strategic Outlook. Um, and that document covered a whole host of things that the Coast Guard is looking at for doing with cyber. Um, but one of the things that it touched on was this idea that uh, the Coast Guard is the sector agency responsible for preventing and responding to maritime cyber incidents within the marine transportation system. Um, and this is something that I knew was probably coming. I had seen all the, the couple of policies that had come out 
But I reread that document a couple times. And to me, it seemed like we were putting a whole lot of responsibility on the captain of the ports, um, on these operational commanders that oversee the MTS. And the responsibility made sense in the sense that this, this authority, I thought, fit very nicely with it. But when I looked back at the policies that the Coast Guard had enacted that we were trying to use in, as tools to enforce this, it seemed as if there was somewhat of a disconnect. Um, so I've been thinking about this and uh, talking to some people, some of my, men my mentors about it, just to see you know, what their thoughts on it were and where they thought the Coast Guard was going, if there was maybe something that was on the horizon. Um, and while I was thinking about this, we had, I was reading my September episode of Naval Proceedings and I saw a nice shiny page that said information warfare essay contest. Um, so that's kind of where the seed was planted. And I decided to research this topic and see if, you know, see if what I thought was actually a thing and put it into an essay format. So Rachel, you call it a disconnect. Can you frame that for us very deliberately? Because the article starts off um, with, uh, you know, a large number of moving parts, some acronyms. So for mm -hmm. folks who know nothing about the Coast Guard's maritime responsibilities, can you can you frame this disconnect for us? Absolutely. So because what what I'm saying in this article is not that the Coast Guard has no tools, but that the, the tools that we have don't quite meet this level of responsibility that that we need. And so I think that it's hard to talk about this in a cyber context. So to put it in something that maybe is a little bit easier for people to understand. Um, one of the things that the Coast Guard regulates is we regulate commercial passenger vessels. And, you know, the captain of the port, um, like, like I said, this operational commander that has overall responsibility, they are the ones that are responsible for making sure those passenger vessels are safe. And so when my inspectors go out to a vessel, one of the requirements that these vessels have is that they have to have provisions for fire detection and prevention. And so we go out and we have a, a list of regulations that we look at that are codified in the code of regulations, such as alarm temperatures, um, ventilation shutoffs, down to the specific type of hoses that these engines have to have. And if they have a small problem, like let's say we identify that they're using the wrong type of hose, which is leaving their engine vulnerable and could be a risky maneuver because we could have a fire. That's not going to rise to the level of this cat in the port action because it's not significant enough. So my inspectors are probably going to write a 10-day requirement, a 30-day requirement. They're going to give the operator time and they're going to make sure that 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 little small problem doesn't escalate and become a larger problem. But we stop it at a very low level. And so the issue with that I identified with what's happening with cyber right now is that the regulations that we are currently drawing off of and what these policies are based off of is a very generic reg regulation that says um, that the Coast Guard is in charge of ensuring that facilities and vessels have security over their computer networks, com computer networks and telecommunications. Um, but, but that's it. That's the extent of the regulation. And so it doesn't allow us to have this cumulative approach where we're looking at specific things when we go out and regulate these vessels because it's not a minimum standard. It's just an overarching regulation. And so if we go out and find something small, the only option for us is this drastic caption the port action. And I, I really think that that's challenging because this captain of the port authority is generally only used in really dire situations that are immediately affecting vessel safety. And so I think that it would be a very big jump, jump to make for an operational commander to put a captain of the port control action on a vessel for something as simple as not having a policy in place for their facility and how they were patching their computer network. But the fact that that facility didn't have that is a vulnerability that needs to be addressed. And so I think what's challenging about it is there's not this cumulative enforcement that we have for the other regulations that we enforce in the Coast Guard. 
So you you mentioned uh, that you know you go out and you inspect you know for example the the, the fire prevention and fire fighting uh, equipment that that a, that a ship has a commercial ship whether it's a cruise ship or a, a container ship uh, and 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 you have authority and you've also got training right to recognize what that uh, fire system should be uh, the types of hoses the the temperature that the sensors go off at all those th- kinds of things but what kind of training do you and your small team of people that have to look at and inspect hundreds of, of vessels per year, what kind of training do you have to inspect their networks and inspect their, uh, you know, their network intrusion, their capability to, you know, secure their networks? I mean, are you even trained with in, in that kind of uh, area? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's a discussion that I've been having with a lot of people in my office because the the current policies do require this type of training. And I, I do think the Coast Guard has something in, in the works. But right now, you know, maybe because of the expediency with which these policies were enacted, because, you know, something had to be done and we need to start talking about this cyber issue with facilities. Um, we don't really have a set training. So I think the Coast Guard has done a good job of providing resources and pushing resources out to the field. Um, like, for instance, my office had a visit from a member of the cyber protection team, and they kind of explained what we should be looking for. But the problem is this isn't standardized across the Coast Guard. So at the end of the day, what you get is people who aren't super familiar with cyber regulations or cyber networks and were looking at these cyber policies and these cyber plans and trying to help the facilities figure out where their vulnerabilities lie, when in theory, that may be something that we're not experts in as well. Um, and it, it does make it challenging. And do you also have responsibility over cargo handling facilities? So not just the ships that come and go to the ports, but the, the, the overall port infrastructure itself, correct? Yes, that's a good question. I forgot to explain that. But so the marine transportation system and what we inspect is everything that moves up and down that we consider to be a risk. So like I said, those those cargoes, like think oil and hazardous materials, but also the Coast Guard regulates waterfront facilities along federal waterways that transfer to and from the waterfront, those types of cargoes as well. Um, we're not in charge of generally the whole facility. Um, there are specific parts that we have jurisdiction over, but we have a lot of regulatory actions we can take over those facilities as well. So for the average listener, um, why should they care about cybersecurity in this maritime realm? And what are some of the bad things that can happen if somebody hacks either a port or a vessel? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think through researching this essay, I am not a cybersecurity expert. And so I wasn't quite sure what I was going to find. And once I started researching this essay and reading a little bit more about cyber, um, it, this problem is. Um, reading some of the, the narratives of cyber attacks is almost like reading a true crime novel. And I think when it comes to the marine transportation specifically, um, we have like a couple of reasons that I'm concerned and why I think you know the general public would be concerned as well. Um, I think the first one is that the entities that the Coast Guard inspects, these facilities, these vessels, we inspect them for a reason, and that's because they pose a danger. And so when you're talking about a cyber actor um, who's getting into something like an oil refinery, 
all of that operational technology within that oil refinery is essentially what keeps it safe. And that's what we're talking about is dangerous if these cyber actors were to access something like that, because at that point we could have a major explosion um, and these things could essentially be weaponized against the United States from an actor that's never even stepped foot on our shores, which is a pretty terrifying thought. Um, so along with that, we also have the infrastructure challenges. And, you know, I think we've all seen with COVID what happens when even a small hitch happens in the supply chain. But if you look at something as major, and this wasn't a cyber attack, but I'll use it as an example, the evergreen grounding the Suez Canal, that backed up the supply chain for months globally. So if we're looking at a cyber compromise vessel that did something similar in the Mississippi River, that could have economic implications for years for the United States. So while I think these facilities and vessels being weaponized against the United States is obviously a terrifying prospect, I actually think that the danger to infrastructure would be much more wide ranging. Yeah, it's, you bring up Ever Given. I, I remember I was at Home Depot and they didn't have lawn furniture because of Ever Given. And there were also auto rims, like a whole bunch of auto rims um, that didn't reach you know, the suppliers. And so there was a shortage of auto rims in the marketplace. So, you know, we all just take for granted that we walk into the store and there's stuff on the shelves. And uh, I think some of the COVID has, you know, things like toilet paper, we don't take for granted anymore. But uh, this global interdependency, uh, I think sometimes we just don't get it, right? And, and we're a little bit spoiled with respect to our expectation, uh, at, at, particularly at retail level, uh, as we amble about, even if we're not in near a port, you know, um, so, you know, your warning needs to be heeded by everybody. Yeah. And there, I remember uh, a factoid that I heard and I it was in a couple of different places, including the, the show that I listened to called Marketplace, which is hosted by a former naval officer, uh, but also Wall Street Journal reported on this a lot. The cost of the blockage of ever given the Suez Canal was four hundred million dollars per hour per hour I so, you say per day no no per hour, per hour. Hour. So that is just that that is a great example, I think, of how massive the 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 you know repercussions can be of something like that. One ship, right? One ship in the wrong place at the wrong time or doing the wrong thing. Uh, you know, that's that's an incredible statistic. Uh, Rachel, your your article. So I'm going to just read a little bit because um, you say you, to make this point, large vessels have computerized networks governing ballast, stability, cargo, propulsion, power, and navigation systems, just to name a few. If compromised, these systems could be weaponized against the maritime transportation system and cause a major pollution incident or disrupt critical infrastructure. So that's that's the, the key point. And then you, you have a couple examples in here. You know, one of them was in, uh, in 2017, the shipping giant Maersk, was a target of a global malware attack. Describe that for us. Yes, the Maersk attack was actually fascinating when I started to read about it, because what happened, the malware that affected the Maersk Lines computer, it wiped out any system that had any contact with Microsoft. So we're talking about email addresses, contacts in this company's phone. So imagine trying to respond to a crisis if you don't even know the phone number of your chief executive. Um, so they had to, I, I read a bunch of interviews um, by the people that were responding to this. And I mean, like I said, it read like a true crime novel because essentially what they had to do to rebuild their network 
is they had a, a port in Nigeria that was offline at the time of the incident and had data that was uncorrupted. And so they had a local Nigerian worker take this data, sit on a plane from Nigeria um, back to Denmark and essentially fly back the one hope they had to rebuild their networks. Um, I mean, it's just like warfare on a totally different scale when you think about it, because we kind of have to redo how we respond to these incidents, how we prepare for them, what our contingency plans are. Um, and that's not even talking about the military. We're talking about private industry here, right? Who is very focused on profits above all else, because that is why their company exists. So essentially what we're asking these companies to do, and what I think Maersk has done a good job of now that they've seen the implications, is make sure that they have a, a manager that manages cybersecurity up in their top management and up in their C-suite and up their response plan so that if something does happen where they can't get in contact with anyone in the company and they have no computer networks anymore for all of their top executives, that they're still able to respond to these incidents. Because I think the Maersk attack is, is still a very real attack that could happen. Um, and that's what the Coast Guard is really trying to manage against. And so those are the tools that we need. We need to be able to evaluate these networks to make sure that something like that doesn't happen with bigger implications or bigger um, threat than what happened to Maersk. Yeah, those are some great points. Uh, one of the thoughts that that jumped into my mind as I was reading your article, rereading it, was the idea of public-private partnerships. And I know that the Coast Guard, you know, as a Navy guy, I didn't, I didn't really think about the Coast Guard a whole lot during my career. Uh, I knew some of the missions, but not all of the 11 statutory missions. This one, Captain of the Port, overseeing the MTS is uh, is one that I'm, the more I read into it, the more I, I'm amazed by the, the amount of responsibility that that, you know, entails. Um, give our listeners uh, an idea of the, the, the size of the impact to the U.S. economy that the MTS has. Yeah, I was just actually reading that over in the strategic outlook. And I think 25% of the gross domestic product for the United States moves to the MTS. Um, there's over 34 trillion or billion, um, but somewhere up there in the high number of cargo that moves through it every year. So we're talking huge, huge economic implications. Um, like if you think about how much a rail car moves, a barge, one barge can move almost 10 to 30 times that depending on the size of the barge. So a lot of the times what companies find is it's much more economically feasible to move stuff via the nation's waterways. And we have the Mississippi River, which gives us amazing access to the interior of the United States. And so I think a lot of people, we, we see you know, logistics, shipping on the road and via rail. And a lot of people, unless they're intimately involved in the waterways network or shipping or port management, they don't really understand the volume of goods that come through that system. Um, but it really is impressive. So it's uh, wintertime in Chicago right now. Uh, give us a, a description of what's happening in the, the port of Chicago. What What's uh, your daily you know, op tempo, like what, what kinds of things are you and your team doing on a daily basis? Uh, not just in the cyber realm, but just, you know, safety inspections, the amount of traffic that's coming and going, uh, ice breaking operations, all those kinds of things up where you are. Yeah. So the Port of Chicago is really interesting because we have, we, we are on the edge of the Great Lakes, but we also connect to the Western rivers via the Illinois river. So we have, we are kind of that connection to the Western rivers and the Great Lakes. So we have like two vessel fleets that we regulate really here. Uh, we have towing vessels, which travel up and down the Mississippi River, um, bringing barges and cargoes to Chicago and then back down to the south. 
And then we also have small passenger vessels. Um, so Chicago has a lot of architecture tour boats. Um, those are a, a large part of what we regulate up here in my office. And so the interesting part about Chicago, because we do have a winter, is that our passenger vessels go through a little bit of a cycle. So we see them generally in the summer for an what we call an annual inspection, where we go through all their vessel systems, do a bunch of tests, run drills with the crew. But then in the winter, they all go into layup. And every five years, the Coast Guard has to inspect these vessels while they're out of the water as well to make sure that they haven't developed any risky conditions that we didn't know about prior. Um, so we're doing that. And then also, uh, despite the ice, the cargo still moves up and down the river. So we do occasionally get calls about barge collisions um, with ice that, or with each other that we end up responding to um, to make sure that nothing dangerous has leaked out. And if something has, then we will respond to it. So it's uh, it's definitely an interesting port to be to be in at this time of the year. So safety inspections, uh, pollution types of inspections, uh, environmental impact, um, commercial traffic, passenger traffic, uh, cargo traffic. You, you see it all. When, uh, when you talk to you know, captains of ships or company representatives about things like uh, you know, network security, how, how do those interactions tend to go? What, what, what is, uh, you know, are you bringing somebody in who's inspecting their network or do you have you know, folks on your team who are doing that? Do they see you as, uh, as a partner or do they see you as, is it like uh, you know, when, you get, when you get pulled over by a cop, it's like that, oh no, oh my God, what's gonna happen reaction? How, how does it go? Yeah, so a lot of it depends on the company. Um, some companies we have really good relationships with um, and they really truly wanna make their vessels and their facilities safer. So these are the type of people that will email us and contact us in between their inspections if they have a question or if they're unsure if what they're doing is safe. And so those people, I think, welcome us on board because they truly want us to test their system and see what's wrong with it and make sure that we can make them safer. Um, but then on the other side, uh, we do have partners as well that maybe do see us as more of that regulatory um, kind of like cop law enforcement type persona. Um, so it really just depends on the safety culture and the culture of the organization as well for how we're viewed when we're on board. Uh, as far as the conversations on cyber go, that, that's an interesting question. So the current policy dictates how we start those conversations. Um, and we start off by asking, do you have cybersecurity countermeasures? Um, and then we just wait for the vessel owner or representative to respond. Um, and what's interesting that we've been finding is that usually when we ask that question, we're not asking it to someone high up in the company. We're asking it to whatever barge rep or towing vessel representative is there to meet us to go over the rest of their safety systems. And when we bring that up, they usually kind of shake their head a little bit and say, oh, I don't deal with cyber. That's the IT department. And I think that that is a little bit of a terrifying concept and one that I hope when the Coast Guard enacts future policy, we can eradicate. Because I really think that cybersecurity is important for everybody in the company chain, uh, not just top management and especially not just the IT department because cybersecurity should be what email links you can click on, what authorizations you have, where do you post your keep your passwords. And those are the things that I would like to see in the future, every person that steps on board a vessel and works on board a vessel taking responsibility for. So Bill, we like to tout the power of the independent forum that is the Naval Institute. And we had some evidence of that with Rachel's article. Yeah, so two weeks ago, I was up at the Coast Guard Academy for an event that the Naval Institute uh, uh, put on at the at the academy with um, the Loy Institute of Leadership, and it was a uh, uh, it was an appearance by General Nakasone, the commander of U.S. Cyber Command, 
And uh, he came up and, and got a presentation, capstone presentation from the Coast Guard Academy's cyber majors, also their cyber team, uh, which was very cool. I mean, the, you know, college seniors, these cadet seniors and juniors presenting, hey, here's my research you know, project. Here's what I've been doing for the last six months. Uh, and, and it was mostly, you know, teams of two or three cadets, uh, but getting to brief that out to, you know, the, the NSA director slash cybercom commander was pretty cool. And as you might expect, uh, the, uh, the Coast Guard sent a couple of admirals up there at the same time. And so the commander of uh, Coast Guard Cyber, Admiral Ryan, and the uh, two-star admiral who described himself to me as the, the Coast Guard's federal regulator. So getting to the regulatory side of this, his name is John Mauger, Admiral Mauger. Uh, and at lunchtime, Admiral Mauger mentioned a proceedings article from the January proceedings that, that he particularly appreciated. And I, I stood up and I, I had a question asked, but I also said, well, sir, if you like that one, wait till you get the February issue, because we have this article by Lieutenant Rachel Alt, U.S. Coast Guard, about uh, cyber and regulation and, and authorities that the Coast Guard needs to do its job better. Uh, so we sent him a, an advanced copy of the article. He was a huge fan of it and has now shared it with a group of three and four stars uh, officers in the Coast Guard because they're looking at this very closely. Like, what do we have to do? What do we have to? One of the things that Admiral Margaret said was, you know, what do we have to ask Congress for? Right. Because the, the policy and the regulation, some of that stuff is things that the Coast Guard can manage at its at its own level. Some of it requires, you know, Department of Homeland Security level uh you know policy writing and some of it requires congress to say here's the law that you know you're going to now enforce so he was a big fan of the article he's written us a comment and discussion reaction to your article uh that will be in the march issue so that was a really kind of cool interaction with the right person at the right time with the great uh you know proceedings article by by a, a lieutenant who had seen a problem and you know written a piece about how to make it better so as we talk about the problem, the way you summarize it at the end, Rachel, is to date, cyber incidents have not culminated in any major maritime disaster. However, dot, dot, dot. And then you say the disconnect between the responsibilities that the 2021 Cyber Strategic Outlook places on field commanders and the paucity of actual tools they have to prevent or respond to cyber attacks leaves the MTS vulnerable. So we hear good words from people attending conferences, but what's your sense that, you know, there's bucks behind the idea that this is a problem that needs to be solved? Does this strike you as a priority in terms of budgets, in terms of things that they're doing to fix the problem? Yeah, I mean, I think if it's not a priority, I certainly hope that it is. Um, and oftentimes in the Coast Guard, in, in my world of work, we say regulations are written in blood. Um, and what that means is that if you, when an accident occurs, generally regulations come out of it. And that's a lot of the reason that we enforce the laws when we do. But my hope for cyber um, and for the Coast Guard is that we're able to put these policies in place before something happens um, and really be kind of that silent regulator in the background. That's not responding to the casualty from something that happens, but it's preventing it before it does. Boy, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah, written in blood, and let's get ahead of the blood, please, on this one, uh, 100%. Um, well, this article is a great article. Uh, really appreciate your writing it. So again, our, our guest today has been Lieutenant Rachel Alt. She is a Coast Guard regula regulatory officer up at the Port of Chicago. 
the article is called The Coast Guard Needs Stronger Policy to Prevent Maritime Cyber Attacks. It's in the February issue of Proceedings. It starts on pages 26 and 27. And uh, Lieutenant All, can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. I look forward to hearing from you, um, you know, maybe a, a month or two from now, what kind of feedback you're getting from your chain of command and what, what kind of changes uh, have happened because of this article. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm very excited to see where the Coast Guard goes next on the cyber front. Cool. Well, until then, uh, stay warm. Keep doing a great job that you're doing up there in Chicago. I don't, I don't uh, envy you uh, wintertime in Chicago, but it's a lovely place in the summer. Uh, and uh, and hope hope you'll write for proceedings again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Thank you, All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. And this podcast is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, the Naval Institute has been putting forward the open forum generating the ideas that change the sea services. So if you're not a member, join. You can go to www.usni.org forward slash join to become a member today. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>